So hello and welcome to our Connecticon on regenerative culture. Um, I want to welcome, we've got a fantastic lineup of speakers um, this evening. Um, of course, it could be morning for some of you. Um, and to all of our listeners, um, those of you who are with us right now, um, those of you who are listening to the podcast or the replay, um, uh, and I want to thank Connector for hosting this. Um, Connector is an ecosystem for connected work. Um, it's a place where uh, which hosts conversations, connections, and there are also um, fascinating circles where you can inter interconnect with people and explore different subjects. And if you'd like to find out more about Connector, do visit the website www.connector.com. So my name is Jenny Anderson. Um, I'm from a company called We Activate the Future and I'm your host this evening. Um, so I'd like to bring in first, to start off with, each of our special guests and ask them to introduce themselves to you um, and to just take a minute to share with us why regenerative culture um, is really important for them. Um, and then we'll get into our discussion. Um, welcome particularly also to anyone who's uh, attending from uh, the United States tonight where regenerative culture is something that I'm sure is on all of your minds. Um, so let me introduce, let me start first um, with you, Safia Mini, MBE, who is the founder of People Tree, um, MD of Pozu Shoes. Um, Safia is an author um, and an activist and campaigner in her own right. So Saf, would you like to share a little bit about what's important about regenerative culture for you. Yes, thank you very much, Jenny. And it's, it's great to meet all my lovely um, friends here tonight. I mean, this is a, it's a new, um, it's a new set of vocabulary to me. Um, so I feel um, very honored to have the opportunity to, to use this opportunity to learn as well. I think my journey has been very much looking at uh, fair trade business and, and how we can link up um, using um, apparel, so clothing and uh, more recently footwear, um, to really create social impact and, um, and change. Um, so really looking at social justice and environmental justice in the developing world. Um, yes, I think that's, that's my top line. Thank you. Thanks, Safia. And Jean-Claude Pierre, who's the CEO of Scott Barder, um, share with us a little bit about your company, which is also very interesting. Hello, hi everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, probably. So yes, I'm the CEO of Scott Bader. Scott Bader is a company making chemicals uh, around the globe with about 700 people. What is unique about Scott Bader is that we are a trustee ship since 1951. So more than 65 years ago, the founder of Scott Bader gave his company to his employees and rather than transferring the ownership from one single owner to many owners he put the shares in a trust so we are members of a trusteeship and we basically are registered as a charity and uh, we have absolutely no incentive to uh, sell the company the incentive we have is to make sure that the company is in a better place when we leave it compared to when we join it basically and for me, what uh, generative, uh, uh, regenerative culture means or how it, why it's important is that I believe that the world has lost its sense of purpose and that uh, we are all spending a lot of our time in various organizations. So basically working. And so we need as organization, we have a responsibility to make sure that we are creating the conditions of having regenerative cultures for the people to uh, become themselves, become better citizens uh, to address the challenges we face today as a society. Uh, I'm gonna be, we're gonna be fascinated to explore um, how uh, different legal structures affect the potential for culture um, later. But let me go now um, to you, Daniel. Daniel um, Christianval, who is the author of Designing Regenerative Cultures and um, a real expert in this field, Daniel. Um, thank you for inviting me again, Jenny. Um, great opportunity to have a conversation about what regenerative culture might mean to other people. While, while I was writing the book, um, I was actually 
working under the working title Living the Questions Together. So this uh, works really well for me because it's a collective exploration of, um, I, I love what Jean-Claude just said, the world has um, lost its sense of purpose. Um, for me, very much uh, designing regenerative culture is about all of us taking a page out of the book of biomimicry and understanding how we as life can contribute to creating conditions conducive to life. And for me, that's a very good sense of purpose. And um, very much as, as Jean-Claude talked about his company, um, whether it's a company or the planet, our job is to leave it in a better condition um, when we leave it than when we received it. Um, so I'm excited about this conversation. Thank you. Super, and, and last but not least, um, Helen Sanderson, who um, I've interviewed for my own podcast and for my book also, um, who is the founder of Wellbeing Teams. The Wellbeing Teams is um, an extraordinarily new business, um, which Helen ha is experimenting and doing brilliant things with a self-managed structure. So Helen, would you like to just say a few words yourself? Thank you, I'm delighted to be here. Wellbeing teams are small self-managed teams inspired by Birdsorg. We're operating across three areas in the UK at the moment. We started serving people in January and we've got about 50 colleagues working together in a variety of self-managing teams. And our purpose is to support people to live well at home and be part of their community. We want to work in ways where everyone's well-being matters and the community benefits. Fantastic. Okay, so, so if I think about the first conversation on regenerative business that we held, I guess it must be a couple of weeks ago now, um, we focused a lot in terms of regenerative culture and regenerative design on um, what I think is the underneath the bonnet, the engine uh, of business, things like how we, how we could transform business towards a circular economy, net positive business models, but what I'm really excited to explore with you all is the, the other side of that coin that I think is as important, which is um, the human, the social experience, um, the responsibility of businesses to, um, to participate in creating the conditions for um, human beings to become their absolute best selves. Because I think for me, one of the things that really just hit home for me when I was started studying again a few years ago was I read a book by a brilliant woman called Joanna Macy, um, which was called Active Hope. And she talked about three different ways that you could act uh, in the world today. Um, you know, the first, protect and preserve. The second, life-sustaining systems, the sort of big suckers like energy, water, waste, food systems. But the third and most important pillar that she talked about was the shifting consciousness um, and that everything else could only happen if we as human beings really shift it, shifted our, our levels of consciousness. So I, I kind of like to start in a way with, with wondering what it is that you think that we've lost in terms of humanity in business um, during the last maybe 100, 150 years of sort of the industrial model of doing business, of designing businesses like machines, you know, what have we lost and why have we, why have we lost that? Um, and maybe Daniel, I'll, I'll come to you first on that. Um, I think it, it would be harsh to like basically basically i think it was a gradual process um i don't think anybody um intended willfully to disconnect humanity from nature and um disconnect businesses from their communities um but over time i think what we have found is that um businesses used to serve people in society and somehow we've uh, created economic models that have uh, created a false perceived scarcity and, and even deeper um, cultural stories. You were saying, talking about the shift in consciousness. We have a cultural story that is all about scarcity um, and, and competition and competitive advantage. And in 
telling this story, we've also created businesses that basically serve shareholders and at very best, maybe the staff and often just the upper echelons of the staff and not necessarily all the staff. And so that's maybe something that, that we've lost, but we've also gained a lot of consciousness around that in the last few decades and are trying to address it. Um, other things are that in, in the move of always scaling up, this idea that always bigger is better and, and having an international market, um, we've uh, created businesses that lost the deep connection to the biocultural uniqueness of place, um, both in the way that they produce and the way that they relate to customers in place. Um, it, like UK is a great example of that. If you like over the, this, this change of the cityscape to basically have the same, almost the same order of the same high, high street shops all over again. And um, you, you wouldn't know which city you got plonked in if somebody just took you somewhere and, um, and, and, and took the blindfold away because it would look the same, the same kind of mall with the same kind of shops. And so really um, by connection to people, connection to place, connection to the story of place, is something that, that we also might want to regain. And um, and then what I said earlier, this, this rather than businesses exploring within an industry how they can best collaborate to make the most sensible use out of resources and um, maybe even produce in such a way that their production gives back to nature is regenerative rather than um, always have an extractive model. And, and, and th these kind of ecosystems of collaboration need businesses to work for collaborative advantage rather than competitive advantage. So um, we've got a lot of work to do, uh, yeah. but I think we're beginning to become conscious of that. Yeah, and I think that you brought up a, a number of really fascinating points there, um, changing narratives, um, losing that biocultural sense of place, um, you know, which, which it, it all kind of plays into a story of separation. Um, I think it, it, of, of somehow it, it, not just socially, but in business, um, you know, that that story of separation has just taken root it, you know even in a very simple way that when we go into work we don't take the whole person into work we wear a mask we're a you know a different kind of individual and i know um you know helen you've had a lot of experience with with you know with with designing a very people-centric business in your organizations Yes, we've worked really hard to support our colleagues to bring their whole selves to work. And that starts right at recruitment. So we use a value-based recruitment, which means that we're not looking for CVs and we don't do interviews. I think employing somebody on the basis of an interview is like going on a first date and deciding to get married. And I think there are lots of different ways that we can use to find the best people. And it's actually not the best people, it's the best fit. Are you the best fit for our organization and are we the best fit for you? So our, our process starts with um, an initial conversation. So a 20 minute conversation with somebody who's already doing the work so they can ask questions about what it's really like to work in a well-being team and then if that works out um, we invite people to a recruitment workshop and again rather than a cv we ask them to do something that's called a one-page profile which says tell us what people like admire or appreciate about you and tell us what really matters to you tell us you know what your passions your interests your hobbies are what you do outside of work um, and then bring that to the recruitment workshop and then at the recruitment workshop, there's a series of exercises and tasks where we learn about people's values. Um, we learn about how people show up um, as people together. So we start our journey of bringing the whole person to work there right at the beginning uh, with recruitment using a value based approach. And, and I think you also, um, Jean-Claude, in your experience at, at, um, at Scott Barder, you, you know, I think what is often unusual in businesses, so Helen's business is very much in a service sector, is, is we have businesses that focus on perhaps environmental regeneration because they're in manufacturing, or they focus very much, or they're more strongly 
um, focused on developing humanity or humans if they're a service business. But it's very, very rare still to find businesses that do both well. And I, I think both your business, Scott Barder and Safia, both of your businesses, uh, People Tree and at Pozu, do that very well. So what, what, what is it that is um, that you have found is a necessary way of designing your businesses that can, can bring together both of that environmental transformation and regeneration but also the regeneration of the human spirit the people side you know how have you achieved that maybe i'll come maybe you jean-claude might like to sort of share some of your experience first and then safia you too so at scott Bader, uh, since the inception of the uh, organization our founder at this uh, vision very clear that business was not about making money but about satisfying the needs uh, that we have as, as human beings. So that was very clearly stated from the early days of the, of the company. And we have uh, developed a number of democratic processes which are secured, if you wish, by uh, something which we call the constitution. So I think it's quite unusual to have a business which has a constitution and where we are having very clear descriptions of the governance principles and the purpose I was mentioning, which was about making the, the world a better place and making sure that we leave a company in a better position when we leave it compared to when we join it. So this is very, very clearly stated. And we have a governance structure which is composed of three elements, what we call the Commonwealth uh, board, which is basically the guardians of our ethos. So we have guardian trustees, and we have elected uh, colleagues from the company who are making sure that we are staying true to the original ethos of a founder. And when there is questions, and I had one recent questions about we were doing things on, on variable pay, and there was arguments, are we true to the ethos of the company? So I submitted back the, 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 the situation, the, the question, to this uh, board to making sure, so are we true to our ethos? So there is this element. There is the, what we call the members assembly with the group of uh, people, 12 people elected around the globe, uh, who are employees and actually who have a final say on all the key decisions, whether it is acquisition, divestment, uh, hiring of a CEO, of a chairman, and all the key policies, HR policies, have to be approved by this group of 12 employees. And then we have a normal group board, which is a conventional board, a business board, if you wish. So we have this governance structure, which has really helped us maintain this original ethos through the 65 years we have been going through since uh, the founder gave the company to the employees. On the environmental side, there has been a very clear also um, ambition at starts, but here I have to admit that we have been a bit losing it. And uh, I think we have, uh, uh, we had, uh, our companies are, for instance, uh, some of them are reporting their uh, environmental uh, uh, performance according to the UN uh, uh, Global Compact. We have uh, a number of sites which are certified ISO 1800, but we have not been systematic and systemic in the way we have approached that. So that's one of the key kind of regeneration I have brought to the company, working with the natural step, which is, which is this uh, Swedish NGO and the Sustainable Growth Associates who are representing the TNS uh, framework in, in Germany to really reshape our vision, including not only the human aspect, and we call that humanity, but also the ecological aspect. And uh, we have developed the 2036 vision, which is also including the business side. So it's mainly the three pillars that we uh, people talk about. And uh, really we are now developing, so we did created our vision, we did a backcasting, so where where are, where are we and what are the steps we need to go through? And we are now in, in wave one and we are developing a sustainability balance scorecard 
to make sure that we can indeed demonstrate uh, to ourselves and when we communicate that we are balancing our decisions with care between ecology, humanity and business. So instead of having a, a regular balance scorecard, which is business oriented, we have two additional elements. One is about the ecology or the environment and the other one is about humanity. So, so do you find um, that, you know, having, having that social, that uh, idea of humanity woven into the business from its very, very early days, and I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it's, it was founded by a group of Quakers, is that correct? Well, yeah, the founder was a Quaker, yes. Yeah, I, I, I actually, personally, I find that fascinating myself because I've been doing some work with a Quaker school in the UK, um, and it's very interesting how those values um, weave a lot more, like, peacemaking and change-making into a, a business design. Um, but I think, Safia, probably it's also true in People Tree and in Pozu that do you find when... Um, there is a really clear purpose within the organization that you're able to deliver a more regenerative culture and a regenerative experience for people within the business, even um, through the supply chain in particular, which is always challenging in fashion, isn't it? Yes, I think so. I mean, certainly the, the approach um, with which I um, developed um, People Tree is, was by its nature um, a very regenerative approach. I mean, we, we started with um, the producer of the product and the environment as being, you know, very, very much central to everything that we did, um, which of course didn't mean that we compromised on the quality of the design of the product. You know, we, we started People Tree in Japan, which meant that, it, 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 you know, by virtue of that, it had to be well designed, it had to be a good quality. Um, but, but what we did is we took into account not only fair pay for the workers, but also whether their children were able to go to school, whether they had access to clean water, um, whether they had bank accounts. If they didn't, then we, you know, we went about and, and, and made sure that they did. We, we gave literacy training, we gave numeracy training, we looked at the, 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 the total social environment and cultural environment and, you know, developed that into also um, the design of the product in terms of using um, local traditional craft skills like hand weaving or hand embroidery or the dye techniques um, you know in, in those areas so I think there's um, I mean there's definitely a really interesting move um, that we're seeing now which is where um, a large number of multinationals are realizing that auditing actually um, isn't enough it doesn't really work there's corruption um, in the countries where we audit uh, and that what we have to do actually is go to a process that, that, that we've been piloting at, at People Tree more than 25 years ago, which is, you know, building strong partnerships, building trust, um, working together to understand how, what, what, what kinds of barriers exist to push through and to, to make trade more successful, to deliver more social impact and better quality products that everybody wants. Um, and I think that's been, you know, that kind of partnering approach now is being um, very much looked into through social dialogue, um, which is of course, you know, amongst um, progressive businesses and um, trade associations, both local governments and our own uh, supposed first world governments and, and trade unions in the field. So there's a, there's, a, there's a real sense now of moving forward and pushing um, a, a deep form of, of relationship build and partnering to, um, to really strengthen um, the social impact and and um, and supply chains and let's be honest you know overcome some of the risks around I'm afraid to say scarcity is a reality um, you know when, when when large corporations are looking to secure um, some of the key ingredients that they need for their products they're understanding that they they absolutely now have to um, to go way down the supply chain um, yes I think it's um it's it is interesting isn't it to to look at how we've you know we've we've had these pioneering forms of of fair trade that are now systems that are being adopted by mainstream business and and you know what what do you what do you sort of see as you know where where from where we are now with pioneering businesses like all of yours are is 
what are the next steps that businesses have to take to, um, to, to sort of reconnect people to that greater, wider sense of the, of the, the human spirit? I think it was interesting you talked about, both of you, how your businesses are designed there. And it, it reminded me, um, I think, of something, Daniel, in your book, which is about the, the, the sense of um, biophilic design. Um, taking inspiration from how actually nature works to create organizational cultures. Um, that that, that there's, there's kind of something in that that, you know, we, it maybe would be a more connective experience if we actually designed businesses and culture in businesses to work in exactly the same way, perhaps, that nature works life you know creating conditions conducive to life Daniel I wonder if you have anything you'd like to put in there to throw in there <clears throat> um, yeah that was really interesting thank you um, Helen Safia and Jean-Claude um, how do we create like nature creates. I, I actually asked that question to the long range innovation manager of Ecover when I did a project with them that, that ended up being with Forum for the Future. Um, and, and we called it Glocal Mallorca. And the, 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 the thing we were exploring were, was basically, could Ecover be an international global knowledge holder and work more and more like working with supply chains, but, but because the complex thing about working with supply chains is that they've become so extremely international and global. Um, and uh, a lot of the environmental impact comes with the, from, from the shipping of materials from a, uh, a, a resource site to a production site and then back out to the sites of, of sale. And um, I think that we will see a move towards increased regional production for regional consumption. And this project with Ecover was an early exploration of that, looking into whether the company could produce basic detergents, floor cleaners, um, laundry detergents for, for washing towels and bed sheets, and, and sell products to the Mallorcan tourist industry, um, which is 500,000 beds that are full all summer long. Um, that would be produced in Mallorca on like, like on Mallorca based on resources that came from Mallorca and ideally based on waste streams from Mallorca. So the municipal organic waste, forestry waste and agricultural waste. And so in, in many ways we were looking into the, the question, how would nature produce in the ecosystem from local current solar income and local energy sources, from local materials in a non-toxic way, um, products that would be absorbable by that environment without toxic accumulation. And um, we then looked into the, the innovation side in terms of the product innovation, collected a lot of different waste streams, almond husks and, and lemon peel and, try to see what chemicals we could extract from that to then build the products that Ecoware was making. But there was also another level of innovation, which was the business model innovation of how could Ecoware recast itself as the, the, the product design and product knowledge holder company that, that knew how to do high quality ecological detergents and, and cleaning products and then work with local industry to actually produce them. So, so not to go the route of creating a pr new production site and competing with the local chemical industry, but actually working with those in the local chemical industry that had already showed a track record of being interested in creating um, greener products with ISO standards and so on and so forth. And in that process, we, we learned a lot. We also learned that if you try to work with bioregional organic waste streams and basically build the biomaterial culture of the future, we've committed, our governments, most of them have committed to the Paris process um, in response to climate change. That means we're going out of fossil fuel rapidly. This means that the byproducts of the fossil fuel industry, which are the feedstock of most of the chemical industry, will also decline. So 
in the long run, we need to shrink the biomaterial, the, the, the industrial material cycle of the circular economy diagram and grow the biomaterial cycle of, of that. And in terms of um, leather for shoes, you can now grow leather from, um, from mushrooms, for example, in, in the local region where you produce your shoes. Um, it's not commercially but, viable, though. Oh, well, on, on the way, that's, that's all. I mean, the, 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 that's the other thing here, of course, is that a lot of these products, as long, and we had this conversation in the last um, call here, that, of course, we're playing in an unfair playing field within a degenerative economy that is fundamentally driving the exploitation of people and planet. And yeah. um, if as a business you want to survive, you have to play to these rules and you're forced to also become a degenerative business. Um, and um, to, to some extent, you can try very hard not to wherever possible, but certain economic patterns you can't escape. And this is where I think we, we really need regulators to step in and we need to um, pressure that we um, have incentives for local production, for local consumption, because in, and also incentives for products that are part of the um, carbon drawdown response. So we need to draw carbon out of the atmosphere as fast as possible and lock it into materials. And um, any company that does that effectively should actually be um, supported and, and financially incentivized to do that. And ultimately, we need to... I know I can money. I pick up on that point, please, Daniel? Yeah. Um, please. So, so for example, when, when I looked at um, the, it's close to 10 million hand weavers in India and Bangladesh, um, we, we understood that if you make the fabric on a power loom um, and you compare it with a hand loom, um, you're saving about one ton of CO2 per year per hand loom. So each of those millions of families are saving one ton of CO2 um, per year. And then if we, we look again at the kind of the sequestering of CO2 in the soil, if you grow a cotton organically, you know, you're looking at, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of organic cotton farmers um, that are all too small, voiceless, have no economic strength and no body to represent them. And unlike SO and Shell, can't negotiate a you know, CDM program or something to, to bring them this little benefit, whether it's $30 a year or, or a little bit more. And, and so I absolutely agree with you. I think it's, it's creating these, these, these political and economic voices for the most disadvantaged, economically disadvantaged, the people with the lightest economic, the lightest environmental footprint on the world, in the world, that we, that we need to somehow um, create measures and, and um, uh, a system for. But it's extremely frustrating. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there, there are processes underway, and there's a group, um, the Regen Network, is working on um, methods to measure the impact of regenerative, uh, regenerative activity on a given piece of land. And once you can measure and verify that, you can then create, uh, on the basis of cryptocurrencies, blockchain-based technologies that... that um, incentivize that basically give people some form of liquid token for every little bit of CO2 that they sequestered and every action that is taken to restore healthy ecosystems function in a particular place. And, and this ultimately can be traded and can be like turned into a financial incentive. So, so that would mean that farmers finally, the, the primary producers that, that we really should be valuing and that are so desperately undervalued would get paid twice. They would get paid for the price of the final product, but they would also get paid for sequestering carbon, um, protecting the local ecosystem and, and, and taking regenerative agriculture seriously and, and improving the entire local landscape. And these, these new methodologies are very rapidly developing and I think that we will have a sort of transition period where initially it will be pilot projects but more and more money is wanting to divest from fossil fuels and into these kind of technologies. Jenny, your mic is off. Right, so I keep doing that to myself. I think there's two sort of different aspects here, aren't there? There's the um, social inequity and the, the the poor human experience that so many millions of workers have that's very much global north and global south 
um, or oriented. Um, so, so uh, and that tends to play out very strongly, I think, in the manufacturing economy. And then there's another side, which is uh, probably more experienced in the more developed nations, which is the complete loss of um, the, the, what's beautiful about the human spirit in organisations that are designed um, to be very mechanical, very, very machine-like. So there are these two different dynamics, I think, of um, humanity in the workplace and the experience of humanity in the workplace that are, are both contributing to a poor experience for people uh, as well as an extractive process for the planet. Now, Jean-Claude, you were waving kindly and we were ca carrying on there and I know that you wanted to come in and say something there. So let, let me, whilst I'm wittering, let me come back to you. No, but you were talking before about what could be the next step or what should be the next step. And I think uh, one fundamental element for me is to, and you may have talked about this a few weeks back, but it's to bring the externalities we have onto our, our profit and loss statements and our balance sheets. Because unless we are putting all these costs that we are dumping to the outside world or to the next generation, we are fooling ourselves in what we mean by success. And unfortunately, and, and it goes also along investing in people, developing people's capacities. So, uh, so, so how, how do you approach those two things? And, um, and in particular, um, the, the, the development of people as individuals, that shift in that level of consciousness that I think is in many ways unfair to burden onto um, developing economies who are still struggling. But how do we how do we embed a kind of process of human psychological development in the experience of business? And, you know, I know um, that companies like um, NextJump, um, uh, Atlassian, who favor a deliberately developmental approach in terms of how they organize the, the human experience at work. And Helen, I know that you found moving to a self-managed organization releases a lot of that um, potential and capacity for creativity um, and enjoyment in life. And I, I wondered if you'd like to sort of share with us a little bit about, you know, what the design of organization can contribute. Absolutely. Um, Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer launched a book in March this year called Dying for a Paycheck and in it he reveals that the shocking statistic that um, in the US the workplace is the fifth leading cause of death and that's about human misery and stress and the way we organise ourselves. So the challenge for us is how can we create environments where, where people flourish and that, that's one of our values and we're far from perfect in doing that but we're learning such a lot about some of the things that we can have in place um, to do that. So one of them is, is how do we enable people to work to their strengths as well as bringing their whole self to work and one of the ways that we do that is because we're self-managed teams and therefore the roles and tasks that would have been done by management are shared amongst the team so in the early days of induction we ask people to match themselves match their skills and gifts to the different roles within the team and, and start there we also teach people compassionate communication which is also called non-violent communication because our ability to give each other feedback is is how we grow and culturally we are so poor at that so giving people a way a, a language and a process that makes it easier to give people feedback that sucks the blame out of it and makes you feel more confident in doing that and also how do we create a culture of appreciation so on a really really practical level one of the things that we do is give people um, Shannon Weber's um, love notes so if you go to um, loveyou2.org you can download love notes so we give people really practical ways of expressing appreciation to each other and at the end of your first day of induction we give you an appreciation book and, and colleagues write messages of appreciation to each other so so it's thinking about how we can create spaces where we show up as whole people um, we're working to our strengths 
we are expected to give feedback because we see feedback as a gift, but given a way to do that more easily and trying to create this culture of appreciation. So, so lots of things that we're trying, we're not getting it all right by any stretch of the imagination, but our commitment is to keep learning how to get better and better at doing that. I'm muting myself again. So, so how would how would you see that kind of design and culture um, playing out in an environment like um, factories in India and Bangladesh? How could we translate that kind of an approach into the experience of uh, uh, of how we appreciate people? Um, who live in very different circum and work in very different circumstances to us? Well, that's an interesting question. I think, um, you, you know, you start with some real basics, which are that um, first there needs to be gender equality, which means that you might have to, um, you'd, you'd need to support women to find their voice, which you might do through um, firstly giving them um, economic power, which means a livelihood. Um, so you you might look at how you support. You know, we we built one of the first um, uh, uh, nurseries um, for for their children, so they could um, breastfeed, but they had the flexibility of knowing that their children were safe. Um, so you start really with with building on gender equality, um, and then you start to um, to really work with people as as equals. You, you know, you you're not a buyer coming in with a first world. Um, attitude you're you know you're working very much partnering learning um, how technically a product can be produced and, and understanding the problems and solving them together but we had something called a market exposure program which meant that we would bring um, organic cotton farmers or artisans producers as we call them um, to uh, to meet our customers um, in Tokyo or Berlin or London um, and, and we would also send the team or we would take journalists or, um, or buyers or um, celebrities, you know, out to the field. So there was a kind of constant cross-pollinization of ideas that also built into a kind of cultural communication and understanding. Um, you know, I would go and sleep in the workers' dormitories or, um, you know, we would all eat in the village together. But I think what it did is it kind of, it, um, it allowed for... Um, the opportunity of uh, of workers to understand that um, they could expect to be treated with respect, they they could expect a voice, um, and they could expect a supportive environment, which might be a workers' community, a uh, workers' committee, or you know the the opportunity to elect somebody um, to that workers' committee. Um, you know they could they could own the decision making process in um, some of the fair trade groups. Um, where, where they um, where they worked and I think so it's, I mean obviously it depends on the type of size of organization or, or, or where it is in the developing world because every culture is different um, but yes it, I mean it starts it starts with communication and respect and Jean-Claude I can see you want to step in there just to build on what Safia was saying I think uh, human needs are universal so we should not shy away and think that maybe in different, more kind of uh, emerging countries, the, the expectations or the, uh, the needs are different. I spent 10 years in China and I've done in, uh, a number of things that people always say, okay, you cannot do that in China. Well, that's where I learned that we are really all humans and that actually we are expecting the same things. And uh, the natural step is using five elements, so access to health, uh, access to education, uh, having a, an impartial environment. Uh, and these are all elements I have built also, I worked on trust in China, and to discover that actually, even if the process we use is different because our culture is different, what we are seeking is the same. Uh, so I think uh, we should really consider, and, and yes, there is some basic needs that Safia mentioned, and depending where you are, that you need to address first. But ultimately, we can do uh, the same things everywhere. Yeah, I, th I think that, that, that very much reminds me of the, um, 
think the saying of the Iroquois nation, um, you know, which in it, which was very uh, the seventh generation, uh, very similar to Ecover, use in how they design their business, which is in everything that you do um, as a business, um, you should consider uh, people and planet for unto the seventh generation. Um, which is in fact where seventh generation got its got its original name from, um, which seems to me like a a very simple but intelligent principle to consider with whatever action that you take in business, because then you have to consider both humanity and um, and the planet too. Now I know um, we're, we're kind of coming towards quarter two on the hour. We've already been talking forty five minutes, and there are literally hundreds of questions in the chat box. Um, so uh, Amara, do we have anybody who would like to come on and put some questions that we do? You're nodding. Um, so I think that we have got somebody who would like to come on. Is it Naomi? Are you with us? No, you're not with us. Can you hear us? Uh-huh. Yes. Oh, there you are. Hi. Thank you for being, being brave enough to come on and ask a question. Yes, you can thank my laptop for actually complying after a, a couple seconds of thinking. Um, great. I, I actually have a question which wasn't uh, covered in this deeply fascinating conversation yet. And it comes from my point of view as somebody who's uh, in a younger generation. And I really feel sometimes that all of this conversation doesn't do much to mobilize those of us who don't have years of experience or maybe evidence about our work or our possibility to bring new systems of work into various workplaces, whether that's through entrepreneurship or um, if we are simply employees or we're looking to lead this sort of change um, in companies. So I wonder if um, maybe a few of you could comment on maybe a simple way that pioneering businesses can be supporting the young people who are dedicating ourselves to this urgent work. Brilliant question. Thank you. So, Helen, do... That is such an important question. In uh, care in the UK, the majority of people are baby boomers, so uh, women, uh, typically women over 55. And in the way that we're recruiting, we are able to intentionally welcome younger people into the workplace. So in our team in Oxfordshire, uh, Louisa joined us straight from university and her first job um, is with us. So my dream is that people leaving university say, do you know what, I want to see what it's like to work as a part of a, a self-managed team while I'm thinking about about how I test out different options. So I think the onus is on us to make sure it's a place to welcome people straight from university or straight from school so they can experience a different way of working and make those decisions themselves. The other thing is we've launched a course called Future Leaders, which is where people who are already in employment um, essentially do part of our induction course to find out whether we're a good fit for them and they're a good fit for us. So without leave leaving your job, you can test out whether this way of working could work for you. So exploring you know, low cost, different ways where young people can experience some of this and decide if it's for them. Daniel. Daniel? Yeah, yeah I'm keep, keep clicking the wrong mic. Um, anyway, um, wonderful question. And, and I, to some extent, I'm reminded by Buckminster Fuller's, of Buckminster Fuller's quote, if you want to change the system, don't fight the existing system and build a new one that makes the old one obsolete. And, and that would be my big invitation to your generation um, to uh, form flexible networks. I don't, I don't think like, I think we're the companies of today, a lot of the, the established big companies, um, they're so busy in trying to keep the company alive and um, not really busy in um, fulfilling the, the deeper mission that the company was initially founded for. Um, of, of course, exceptions like I'm fascinated by, by the story that Jean Claude is telling about his company. But um, I think there are, there's a lot of support for 
young entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs. There's the, the Edmund Hillary Fellowship in New Zealand. Um, Amara's from inviting people from all over the world. If you have a good idea, come and we support you to hothouse it in New Zealand. Um, then there's uh, networks like Inspiral that, that are basically creating global cooperatives of young people doing what they're doing um, and, and finding new ways of, of billing and supporting each other and, and networking globally. This whole digital nomad culture that is emerging um, where, I mean, I certainly loved traveling a lot when I left university and between different university degrees. And there's a kind of two decades of life where the best thing you can do is to, to collect new cultural experiences on this, this globalized planet. And so um, there are wonderful new networks emerging of, of, of co-workings and co-housings that, that have multiple locations around the globe. And so um, rather than trying to get trapped in the internship rigmarole of working for free for the first five, 10 years of your life, only to then be some kind of belligerent boss that has a gender issue with you or whatever. Um, just don't do that. Um, build, build your own system and make the old system obsolete. And Naomi, does that help you with your question? I, I saw another hand go up there and I missed it. Was that you, Jean-Claude? Did you want to come in? Do yeah, it just was another alternative. There's, uh, in England, there's uh, the organization called the Employee Ownership Association which uh, Scott Bader belongs to and like John Lewis and other companies who try to do something different. So that's maybe something also interesting. There's the B Corp movement also, which is uh, bringing uh, a number of companies who try to look at the business from a different perspective. And these are maybe interesting place to look at as well. Brilliant. Thank, thank you. Naomi, thank you so much for, for coming on with that question. I, I've spotted a couple of other interesting questions. Um, was there anything more that you'd like to ask the panellists, Naomi, before I pop into the chat box and pick a couple of other questions? Perhaps only if Jean-Claude could, uh, could type down the name of the companies that he's listed. And um, yeah, of course, anybody else who feels that they have something to contribute in the chat. I'd like to unbow uh, this. I think we will produce um, uh, some notes with resources um, for the when the replay is edited so that I think that there, there should be a whole list of things that we've talked about on there. And hopefully that will be helpful for you. And thanks again for, for, for coming on. Um, there's a question here which I think is quite interesting to explore and we've just got a few more minutes to do that. Um, which is about diversity, um, you know, which is how, how do we ensure in businesses that we embrace a rich diversity while ensuring a cultural fit within our businesses that, that works. And I, I think all of you have talked about um, the, the uh, having particular cultures within your businesses. So I wonder if there is something that you'd like to say about that you know how you how you design in and allow for a rich diversity. Who would like to attempt that one? Helen, as it was it, it was a question for you. I'm going to pick on you. That sounds good. Um, so the first thing that really matters to us is recruiting local people, because we want to recruit people who are well connected in their own community who the community matters to them that they want to make a contribution back as well so when we're recruiting we're looking for people who live in a five mile radius of the people that we choose to serve so naturally then we are engaging with the communities who live there we use um, facebook to do most of our advertising and of course you can um, do paid adverts on, on Facebook where you can identify the particular communities um, that you want to target. So we, we, we do that. But the other thing is because we use values-based recruitment, we don't know who's in work. We don't know who has a criminal record. We don't know the history of, of, of people's experience. And we can meet people for who they are. 
um, on the day and learn with them about whether we're a good fit. And what we've found is we are representing the communities that we work in, but I'm really excited and particularly having Naomi here as well, is that we are, are reaching many, many more younger people um, than similar organisations across the country. So, so thank you for raising that as an issue. I think we might just squeak in one more question. Um, so I'm going to put this to you, Jean-Claude, Safia and Daniel, um, which is, how do you shift consciousness in people? What learning and transformation experiences do you see would help with consciousness development inside organisations? That's a whopper of a question. And I think it's a brilliant question from Sandra. Hope you're still with us, Sandra. Um, so, Jean Claude, can I ask you first? What you know? What do you think? What learning and transformation experiences help inside your organisation? Well, if I have to choose one thing, uh, I would say, and this is very close to my heart, is to put the people in a position to take more decisions. And it's about creating capacities to develop critical thinking. And critical thinking for me is absolutely key to elevate the level of consciousness. Brilliant. Yes, I, I have to agree with you there because um, it, I do a lot of that kind of work. So I would have to agree with you. Safia, what do you think? What's your experience? Uh, I think when we started uh, something called the social review, which was taking a multi-stakeholder approach to um, our business and people tree. Um, so involving um, the, the, the producers and the staff and the wholesale customers and the e-commerce customers. And we even did a review of, of people who had supported um, the company as um, influencers or, or, or celebrities over the years. But we, but what we did is we looked at um, really two days we would spend after having compiled the data, which I know is very linear and doesn't perhaps fit with this conversation, but then we would have a, a big discussion about how those balances might be found. And I think it was really raising awareness of other stakeholders, you know, needs and desires um, and the, with, with, with your own. Uh, as a stakeholder group and and looking at how you might make a plan going forward and um and i i, I found that that change of perspective um really helped uh, we we also spent a lot of time i think with the kind of internal communications using those for external communications also to motivate about why a fair trade product was uh, better than an unfair trade product or why a, an organic or a, an environmentally friendly product was better than than uh, you know, a conventional product, and and I think that that motivated um, the team internally as as much as it, it motivated the the customers um, externally to the business. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, um, I, I mean, I can't believe yet again we have covered such an enormously wide, wide range of topics here. Um, oh, sorry, Daniel, you want to come in before I start wrapping up? Sorry, I yeah, forgot you. Just because it was just too good of a question, the last question, to um, okay. not get to say something to it. Um, how do we support the shift in consciousness? In my personal experience, um, it's about connection to self, connection to community, and connection to the world. Those three levels. That's ancient wisdom. That's what native uh, cultures all over the world have practiced um, in order to um, live well in place within the limits of place and for me there's it's simple things like meditation mindfulness um, on, the, on the level to connection to self um, the way of counsel another native um, American practice of, of simply learning to listen and speak from the heart in a circle to explore questions together is enormously powerful for that second level and um, connection to the world is both introductions to systemic thinking and, and, and the interacting patterns of the world problematic. Um, we cannot leave that to experts. Everybody needs to be aware of this and, and have some basic ecological and social and economic literacy. But um, so much can be learned just simply by spending some time alone in nature. 
um, like deep connection to wild nature finds gives us the kind of answers that really transform consciousness and 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 living the questions together like asking i i'm reminded of just this very little anecdote the the the, the seed story of my book was an interview that i did with um, america's foremost environmental educator david Orr. And I asked him about the, the deeper dimension of sustainability and the transition that is ahead of us. And his answer was simply brilliant. He said, before we can answer the, the how and the what of sustainability, how we make sustainable product and what we need to do next, we need to ask a deeper question. And that is, why is humanity worth sustaining? That question alone, if you sit with it and ponder it, if you talk to your community and your business are around it in a, in a sacred space, in a deep council space, you will transform consciousness. And I think that's what, what, what our challenge is, to deeply transform um, the way we see ourselves so we can remake the human presence on earth in a way that we stop being a degenerative and destructive influence on each other and the environment and start regenerating um, what we've destroyed and and create abundance for all i don't think there is any possible way i could top that summary and as we are now at the top of the hour i want to thank everybody who's listened um, who's listened to the replay i absolutely massively want to thank um, everybody who has uh, joined me on this conversation thank you to safia to jean claude uh, to Helen, to Daniel, Naomi, thank you to you. And thank you all very much for joining us this evening.